Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I want to apologize first and foremost for the delay. I uh, had shoulder surgery here about three weeks ago due to a mountain biking accident, and uh, that has kind of put me off the eight ball here a little bit, but happy to get back to it. Glad to get back to it. Uh, this is a great talk uh, with Kelly Farina and uh, his new book, Mastering Paragliding, uh, which you'll see from the talk is a must-have. Uh, before we get into that, just a few things that I wanted to come back around to. Uh, in a couple episodes back, I talked about an accident we had here in Sun Valley and, and the rescue that came out of that that went really, really well. Um, some of the things we learned. Um, there's actually an article right now in my column in the current issue of Cross Country that I encourage you to read if you haven't and uh, about that rescue and, and what we did right uh, and, and what we learned from it. And also, uh, there's another one, almost the same article coming out in the next issue of Ushba. So uh, get your hands on one of those, read about that. But I've had a lot of questions about insurance and asking me for links and what I think. Um, I am absolutely no expert, but one of the things that we kind of went through in our debrief was talk about Life Flight and Metajet. And um, I can't speak to our European audience because I don't know how it works over there, but I can speak to my audience here in North America. Um, just real quickly, what we learned. Uh, number one, you're, if you have travel insurance, that only works outside of the United States or Canada. So if you're flying near home, you need something other than, typically other than your insurance, unless it's really bomb-proof for uh, life flight or MetaJet. So number one, get yourself covered with one of those. It depends on what region you're in here in the in the kind of northwest. I'm in Idaho. Uh, we use life flight at 60 bucks a year. That's just brain dead stupid. You got to definitely have that. Um, next, if you fly with a spot or an inReach, which hopefully all of you do, you all know that I am uh, much more high on the inReach, on the DeLorme inReach. It's just a far, far superior device. It is slightly more expensive, but way worth it, as we learned on that rescue. Um, but if you use uh, the GEOS service, uh, the, the medevac service and the emergency return service that they offer, which you all should, the SAR one, the cheaper one, has a very definite paragliding exclusion. So don't, you, and you can change this right now. You know, you don't, you don't have to wait for it to expire and then get the next one, but you definitely need what's called the GEOS medevac. It's 129 bucks a year. Um, it, it covers paragliding. We had the discussion with them. Um, Interestingly, they also said that they really like doing rescues a lot more with DeLorme than Spot, again, because of that two-way communication. Uh, they just said it was much better, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, the next, you need really good... If you're traveling out of the country, you need really good travel insurance. Very, very often, your own insurance... Uh, your own health insurance isn't going to cover, you know, return of mortal remains. I realize this is getting into a black side of paragliding, but it doesn't rec uh, cover often uh, expatriating your you back to your country for your, you know, to, if you want to get into a hospital back home, uh, emergency returns often aren't covered. So uh, you need a, a separate travel insurance. And the best one I've found is through Seven Quarters with their Extreme Sports Rider. Um, I will put up a blog post on the Cloud-Based Mayhem that gives you all these links, uh, but you can get it through my other company. The other website is offshoreodysseys.com. If you click on the member resources, you'll find it there. It's like two to three bucks a day. It's phenomenal. It covers like lost baggage. Um, it, it covers a lot of emergency stuff. We've had a few things happen on our boat to members. Uh, it 
you don't have to be going on the boat. You can be doing anything, including paragliding, hang gliding. Uh, I believe even base jumping is covered. So um, again, it's this one with the extreme sports rider. So if you're traveling outside of the country, that's what you need for that. Um, and then some combination of either Global Rescue, which is like 330 bucks a year, or MedJet Assist, which is 240 bucks a year. This may not totally be applicable, but just I guess uh, what this is, all, what this means, this whole discussion is, is just make sure you're covered. That's what we learned in that rescue. It just makes, you know, it's a little bit of money up front, but it will save you thousands and thousands and thousands, or your family thousands, if you have something major which hopefully will never happen. Uh, part of making that never happen is this talk with Kelly Farina. Uh, we just had a great Skype conversation. Uh, Kelly's over in Thailand now, but he has just published through Cross Country a book called Mastering Paragliding, which I read cover to cover. And then again, um, terrific book, very comprehensive. I would call this the kind of the, the layman's guide to Burkhard Martin's uh, Thermally, thermal flying. Uh, so this isn't as technical, but it really covers a lot of concepts that were totally new to me, like the four four ninety rule, um, the the three com most common mistakes of paragliding, um, the concept of carving, which I had never heard before. A lot of things like that in this book that really help paint. Uh, that 3D picture that many of us struggle with a lot more clearly. So uh, great talk. Just some of the things that we get into is, you know, the importance of building a toolbox, the dangers of uh, chasing numbers, um, when to move up on a wing. Really good talk about the importance of being able to observe over glider performance. Um, being able to observe and not worry about keeping the nose open is going to trump a better glider time and time again. And I think this is something that lower hours pilots often mistakenly do as they move up to a hotter wing way too fast. So when to move up, and even if you should, great talk about that. God, the four second rule, why we talk about paragliding is a chessboard. Uh, a really easy rule of thumb with speed to fly. I think a lot of people struggle with the McCready rule and, and speed to fly and how much bar to use. Um, Kelly's rule on this, uh, although he admits it's not scientific, is just really easy and I think it's great. So um, some great concepts about, great things to understand about phone if you're flying in the Alps. Um, a really good rule with lee side flying, which I'd never heard before. So yeah, some fantastic stuff here. I think you're going to get a lot out of this, whether you're a 10-hour pilot or you're a multi-thousand-hour pilot. I really enjoyed this talk. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Kelly Farina. so much for your time. I have just uh, read with w eyes wide open your incredible book, which I want to get into here in a sec. But first, I want to hear about uh, where you are and why you're there and uh, what, what are you doing? I'm uh, in Thailand at the moment for some kite surfing, uh, mainly hydrofoiling, but also some uh, strapless wave riding okay. when the wind comes on. And where in, where in Thailand? I know that area quite um, well. Uh, I'm just south of uh, Hua Hin, okay. very close to where the boys do the towing down south. Yeah, right. Okay, so Maddie Senior and all those guys—they've got a yeah, little exactly. business going over there. Are you are you involved with them at all, or are you just doing? Your no, own no, thing? no. I'm uh, I'm just doing my own thing down here. It's my time off at the moment. 
Okay. And how long does that last? When do you, do you spend the winter down there? Is this something you've been doing for years or? Yeah, for about for nine, 10 years now. Okay. That's really interesting. See, so I kind of came, you know, I started with a kite surfing business, still have that going. I've got this boat that goes around the world and I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but that's, that's kind of my. Yeah. And about that, huh? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I got into kiting and then when I discovered paragliding, uh, that's all I ever wanted to do. And still is what I want to do. I mean, I still consider myself a kite surfer, but it sounds like, uh, you, you enjoy both. Yeah, for sure, man. Especially with the uh, hydrofoiling now. It's just opened up uh, all the light, lighter end of the spectrum. Yeah, right. Of course. And, and, and where you are, it's, it's often pretty light. So that must be yeah, great. Yeah, it's pretty light. <laughs> exactly. Flat water, light. Kelly, for our audience, uh, you know, you and I have never met, but I've had some uh, very good friends go through the Alps and the Dolomites and Bassano and, and take some of your courses and stuff. But for those of the audience who, who don't know who you are uh, or who haven't read your book, um, and, and most of this conversation is going to be about the book, of course, but give me a little bit of background, uh, who you are and, and, and what what brought you to, to write this book and what gave you the... Uh, kind of the background to, to, to be able to write such a comprehensive uh, master class, let's call it, in, in paragliding. Wow, so really uh, quite a long story, really. Um, so I've been skateboarding for half of my life when I was younger. Okay. And that brought me to snowboarding. Snowboarding brought me to the Alps. So I'm doing a quite short, comprehensive version of this, really. Perfect. Uh, that brought me to the Alps, where I saw paragliding for the first time. Um, as soon as I saw it, then that pretty much made my mind up that I wanted to get into paragliding. And I changed my lifestyle, not a hell of a lot, because I wasn't uh, really doing that much then anyway, just bumming around. And then I ended up um, just staying on. I was doing ski seasons and flying, and then I just stayed on, and this was back in 96, and um, yeah, I never left. I never left the Alps. After a while, <laughs> I wasn't really having a lot of money, because I was just uh, either sitting on a hill, watching the weather change, or uh, flying, and working a few hours a day just to feed myself and get myself a room, and uh, one thing led to another, and um I thought I'd give my uh, give a go at competing, so I started in the British Nationals. This was in two thousand and one, and met a few boys that were coaching people or guiding people back then, and thought, oh, why don't I do that? Hmm. And that was back in two thousand and two. I started that in Meyerhofen. It's actually a bit of a longer story about that, but uh, I'll just keep it short. And um, yeah, then it just went from strength to strength, and then I realised. The reason why I wrote the book, really, is the reason why is because I saw that there was no structure in the sport. People were being pretty much flung out of school uh, with no roadmap to how to get better. And um, again, I mean, I was all I was doing was flying. And up until about 2009, that was all I was doing. So I was competing. I had a short stint in the British national team. And um, it got to a point where I was getting a bit stale. And I started another sport, and there's nothing uh, more eye-opening than to be a noob at another sport. So I started something called Wing Chun. I talk about it in the book. Now, uh, what I realized of Wing Chun is it's a very black art and based on concepts. And these guys have been thinking about this black art for about 300 years. 
uh, way longer than we have with paragliding. And uh, what they've basically done was to break their art down into concepts and to um, do it in a rational, concise, step-by-step approach, which is how I ended up getting the idea for the book, really, is to take the uh, concepts that I learned from Wing Chun and still do and uh, applied it to paragliding. And here we are today. Uh, i got the book in my hand now. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed this. And clearly your, your book um, – well, number one, it, there's a lot of concepts in this book that – you know, I've been around this sport now for a while, not as long as you have, but uh, – you know, done the X Alps and done a lot of competing and, and, uh, and I've never instructed. So I really enjoyed how you, you take these concepts that are very ethereal, right? When we start to learn about paragliding, well, you, this is just what you do. You thermal uh-huh. and then you glide. Well, well, shit, man. I and mean, that's not very helpful for a lot of folks. And so you've really broken it down. And there's a lot of concepts here that I'd never heard of, you know, like your, your four to nine, your, your 490 rule, um, how did you – was this just experiential? You came up with this or were you – and, and is this um, something you've been actively teaching for years or did this come out of this, you know, uh, studying this this kind of what you call a black art and, you've, and you thought, God, I've got to come up with some more concepts that can be easily broken down? Well, what I noticed was that over the years, just screaming turned tighter at people didn't actually uh, bring anything in the end because, you know, people were saying, like, well, how tight? So what I ended up doing was um, I went on a cross-country flight. This was back in 2009. This flight actually crystallized a lot of the stuff that's in the book. And uh, I went on this cross-country flight, and what I did, I just went on autopilot for about three hours, three and a half hours. And I just watched what I did, when I did it, and its effect. And one of the things that I noticed was that all of my turns took roughly 16 seconds to complete. Hmm. And that was something that when I got back, I wrote down. I also uh, remember when I was mapping, when I was mapping the climb, how I mapped it, which I basically just released my inside hand and I kept my weight on. And that for me was a complete eye opener because I'd never actually watched myself what I did, when and why. And then I got back down. When I got back down to the to my house, and I wrote these things down that I'd noticed that I'd uh, I was doing subconsciously for all these years. Then I started to see a pattern forming, and I started to see that there was some concepts here. And I was running cross country courses before that for for quite a while, uh, and some thermaling courses as well. And what I noticed is that people were I, I could see the errors what people were doing, but I didn't have a way to correct the errors. And that flight, start, that was the very, very beginning where I started to actually have something that I could offer to people. And when I had that 16-second uh, second rule, uh, to make it even easier, I broke it down into four quadrants. So that's how the four for 90 rule came to, came to be. Mm. It's as simple as that, really. Yeah, I, an analogy you come back to, I, I really I, I enjoy it and I can't wait to, I just had shoulder surgery so I haven't been able to fly the last few weeks and I won't be able to until probably late January or February but I can't wait to, to try, especially that one, just to, just to see how that kind of works because it, it was a concept I'd never heard of and I was really surprised to find quite a few of these in, the, in this book. An analogy that I have heard of many times and I use again and again uh, but I want you to talk about is chess. Um, 
Why do we use this so much? Tell me about your concept of uh, why we use chess to describe paragliding, because I do it myself and I love it. Um, well, it's like a, a strategy, isn't it? I mean, when we're playing, uh, when, we, when we're flying cross country, we're playing against nature and against ourselves, but we're playing mainly against nature. And what we have to do, we have to earn our move, which is, and we try to earn our move as efficiently as possible, which is our, how, how well we can climb, uh, how well we can find the climb, how quickly we can find the climb. This is how we can flow over the terrain faster. And um, by earning our moves, we then, um, while we're earning them, we're working out how to play them. And then we're moving our pieces, ourselves across this three-dimensional chessboard. Um, yeah, it's just strategy, really. It's just aerial strategy. Um, nothing more, nothing less than that. And I, I like how you, you go into in, in some detail, and this is really uh, <clears throat> this is really specific to the Alps, and it and it it meant a lot to me because you, you you know you talk about places that I've flown quite a bit, like the Zillertal and the bridge concept, and you know that to me is like using a knight really well, or you know, and so I I, I really liked that analogy. Um, one thing you talk about early on and and you and you kind of keep coming back to it in the book is is your toolbox your your kind of personal toolbox and and one thing that i thought was was really good especially for not even lower hours pilots i think every pilots is is, is i mean every pilot no matter where you are in the game is to stop chasing numbers um, and and build your your toolbox. Um, expand on that a little bit for me. For those who haven't read the book, um, I just think that's really important because I think we, you know when we learn we you know we learn to launch and we learn to land and we we do some ground handling and then suddenly there's this there's this just landscape of XC that that jumps. You know when I first learned how to paraglide, I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't under, even understand that that's what people were doing. And so suddenly it's like, wait a minute, you can launch and fly somewhere else, and then it becomes this. Okay, I've done the fifty. Now I got to get the hundred. I'm going to go to beer. I got to get the hundred. I got to go to the Alps. I got to get my one fifty. Oh, there's triangles, and it's you know if you don't get it, you're left kind of ah. That wasn't a great flight, and I think that's really dangerous. Um, yeah, it's because it pushes people too hard. Huh? It pushes people to push themselves too hard, and without the necessary skills, perhaps mm. early on, early on, um, as you as you rightly said, we need our t- our toolbox to be as full of um, sharp tools as possible. And those tools are well. The first one, like I explained, is pyramid in the um, in the book. First one is having good ground skills. I mean, um, I've just ran a, a thermaling clinic where, ironically, about a third to half of the pilots couldn't get off the ground safely. So it doesn't matter how good they were in the air. You know, if it takes 45 minutes to get off the ground and getting off the ground is, uh, is followed by a sigh of relief from any spectator, it uh, can be a bit... Bit nerve wracking, really. Not only for the spectators, but especially for the pilot. Huh? Mm. Um, so, just it's never wasted time to train the lower levels. I call them the basics, but there's nothing basic about these basics. And yeah, moving on to then carving, and not just um, so that's our, our moving our moving ourselves in an orbit around a climb and doing it smoothly, but also being able to do it. I call it soft skills and our hard skills. So to do it 
um, when the climb is, is weak and narrow. This is very technical because everybody comes up when it's strong and booming. Um, but we also need our hammer. So we might need our, our, our tool, which is uh, for the soft skills, like a, a micro uh, watchmaker's uh, screwdriver. And if you go to somewhere like the Alps in June, late June, there, and you find yourself in a bit of a light lee side, then perhaps you're going to need the hammer, you know, mm. uh, which is the stronger end of the spectrum when uh, the glider is very snatchy. And uh, not only are you trying to map the climb and stay in the core, but you're also trying to keep the nose open in these hard snatches. Mm. Um, and then you move on from that. So from mapping in the light stuff, the soft skill stuff, which is actually my favorite because uh, you rarely see the top of your glider then. Um, and then we move on to route planning, route planning, route adaption, and then the more uh, high-level stuff, the how to fly faster. Um, it's more to do with uh, taking good lines, historically good lines over the terrain, gliding well down those lines, and uh, ultimately being able to uh, understanding the concepts that make us fly fast. So this is like um, the progression, mm. all the different tools that we can that we can use, and uh, to concentrate on the to be honest with yourself and to concentrate on the level that you're at, and even get the levels below. Absolutely, now it is never wasted time. Uh, many pilots they just they like you said uh, they feel that they're a disappointment if they haven't after so many years they've been chasing numbers and they haven't come to them because they rely on this special day where everyone comes up exactly and if they could just learn how to do the basics that little bit better when the sun makes it a little bit tricky maybe the sun goes in a little bit and they get stuck they get low and the climb is a little bit too tight and a little bit lighter than they would like they can still come up in it because they've trained and trained and trained the basics to a high level and as i said again there's nothing basic about the basics huh yeah, and I, you know, I, I, there's a, there's a few things I want to return to there. But one of the things that my guests talk about again and again, you know, these these toolbox skills like ground handling, um, you know. But I also think that one one of the things you emphasize is that you know flights with ascetics that have, you know, that have inversions, that have light climbs, that are technical and hard and slow can be a lot more rewarding than winging it huge on a big wind day. You know, exactly. over, over the flats, like I, you know, there's there's been some remarkable records going down. You know, and I, and I don't want to knock those in any way. Those are oh, just no, pristine, sure, and beautiful, it's, and amazing. You know, those those are just incredible. But the technical flights, uh, you know, a little hundred k out and back, or a small FAI, uh, you know, a sixty k FAI can be a awesome. lot more rewarding than a three hundred k whipper downwind. I find, you know, when when it's just when you when you've nailed hard things again and again and it's a struggle and it's um yes yeah, so i really like how you bring that out and 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 i think this applies to pilots at every end of the spectrum i was down at a super final a few years ago in columbia and it can often be you know either still wind or very lightly over the back at launch there early you know in the morning and you see super final pilot you know the best of the best you know that supposedly um just blowing it again and again i mean and it gets to the b where you're like and i'm not going to name any names but you're like oh god here we go gotta watch this guy again you know day after day just blowing it and then 
there's other people who you, you know are never going to blow it. And, you know, they've, and this is just getting off the ground. And this is the, yeah. you know, these are the PWC guys. And okay, two liners a little this bit harder. This is the bottom of the ladder, you know? Right, the right. And it's. Rung of the ladder is being able to get into the air safely. I find exactly. that, uh, Gavin, I find that pilots who, whose ground handling is not on, on, up to scratch, right? It's because they haven't done enough of it. And because they haven't done enough of it, they, um, they want to brush over it because maybe it's their weaker part of their toolbox so therefore they neglect it and then they start to feel embarrassed that they're good in the air but they're not good on the ground Mm. and perhaps they want then they end up neglecting it more because they feel embarrassed themselves instead of just saying okay i need to train this and being honest with themselves they want to just get that part out of the way hope that hope that they get delivered by the passive safety of their equipment into the air. Uh, I'm not saying this is every pilot who struggles on the ground, but this, I see this quite a lot, where pilots, um, then maybe the wind is good in the landing field, but they don't want to get their kit out because they don't want to look foolish, perhaps. And that's maybe the wrong attitude, because this can save them so much aggro on, on, on launch the next day. I think when you have that kind of Kriegel-esque confidence on launch, you know, you can watch, that's that's why you can watch him just do absurd things in, in perfect control. And a, exactly, I, I really like the, that you stress that uh, because I think, I think that's the human condition, isn't it? To skip over, you know, I don't want to look stupid. I'll just, you know, exactly. yeah. It's a shame. It, it is a shame and it's dangerous. I mean, that's where we get and hurt, it's isn't it? You know? Exactly, it's just the ego that makes us get hurt in the end because, you know, it's really it's really easy to break a collarbone on launch. You know, you just get picked up, or worse, get it wrong, yeah. and uh, get dumped on your side. Boom, that's your holiday over. Yeah, just and because I, you didn't have that in hand. And I, and and one thing that you hear a lot is, "Oh, I just got picked up by this crazy gust." You know, or, or, you know, the, what, what happened to me was, it was so much different for me than it was the last four pilots. And, you know, whereas the good pilots, they just know how to, and, and I I think what, what you bring out quite well is that, you know, if those are the conditions you have on launch, you're going to be feeling those up in the air. It's the same kind of stuff. And if you can just handle it without even thinking about it on the ground, then that stuff is just, it's, it's not something you're even consciously thinking about in the air. Just roll subconsciously with it in the air. Yeah. Um, uh, my instructor said to me, I mean, this is like over 20 years ago now, but he said to me, a minute on the ground is worth an hour in the air. Yeah. And I still say that to, to, to my students coming through. Huh? Yeah. You know, try, try, try and do a little demo and try and encourage them to, to go out. Cause I mean, you know, Gavin, but when you can do something and you get better at it and you see yourself improve, and it's actually quite fun to go out and do it. But if you dread it because you're not very good at it, then you're just going to neglect it. Yeah, it was. I I, I really went back and revisited because I I was lucky where I learned how to fly was was very windy, um, and it was a place that you get really good at ground handling very fast. Um, and then I moved and I I moved to Sun Valley, which is a very demanding place to to fly. Um, and when I when I got accepted into the XOPS the last time around, you know I realized that okay I need to go back to the basics here again because you know, I haven't been ground handling in a few years and I still considered myself a very good ground handler, but I realized like, wait a minute, I better go revisit this because maybe I'm not anymore. These are not, it's not like riding a bike. These are not skills that just stay with you forever. You need to kind of keep 
going back to them and revisiting them and get in the field with some lee side and some funky wind in a place that's safe to ground handle and do it and look stupid again. And I think that that's really important. There's nothing wrong with that, huh? Yeah, no, and and for the for the, for something like the X Alps, it's it's really key. Um, wing choice, I loved this. You talk uh, pretty extensively about, uh, and I, I see this. And again, I'm not an instructor. I just see this in people. You know, when you're flying a hot ship, and uh, and you got guys coming up chasing you from behind, it, you know that are flying lower. Uh, lower end wings and you know you go on a big glide and they come in a lot lower like as they're going to um, they get really discouraged and they want to get on a hotter wing um, tell me about about when you make that jump and and why potentially you shouldn't yeah so obviously um, the more demanding a wing the more um, it takes away from our ability to run um, to run on autopilot so the more we can run on autopilot, the more we, the more bandwidth we can uh, apply to the game in hand. So we can, like, like we've said, you can play the next, the next move, the next move, the next move. Where we're going to earn the next move, we're going to earn the next move. How to flow over the terrain. Now, uh, if the glider is shouting at us, then that um, takes away from our observation. And observation is actually really important because it triggers our experience. And if um, it doesn't matter how much experience you have, if you're flying a glider that's too hot for you, your observation won't trigger it. Hmm. When to change to a more high-performance glider, I mean, only you'll know that. When really you're just squeezing, when you're setting routes for yourself, you're getting round them, you can fly them faster, and you're really noticing that maybe you could do a little bit more. But not just because uh, you think that that extra 3% in climb rate, which is what it is basically between a, uh, um, a performance B and a C, it's probably about 3 or 4% climb rate. That's not really going to help us climb any better unless our skills are absolutely perfect. Mm. I, I think that that's, that's really key. And I think what what a lot of lower hours pilots lose sight of is that, you know, they climb up, they might leave cloud base with, you know, a bunch of different people and a few people are on hot ships and they get to the next climb and they're lower and farther back and, and it's discouraging. And what they, what they don't understand necessarily is that, you know, for the guys that are on the hot ships that aren't thinking about keeping the nose open, um, when when they were in that climb, they're preparing for the much harder thing that is XC, which is the glide. Uh, you know, climbing for for very good pilots becomes like you say, it's autopilot. When they're when they're when they're climbing, they're sipping their water, they're eating their food, they're not working on like, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. They're just they're yeah, definitely that, it's, not. it's really natural, it's really easy. They're finding the core very easy where the lower hours pilots are really working hard. Because like you say, you can't fly XC if you don't have if you don't climb. You have to learn this very key important skill which is climbing. But you know, it's much harder to glide well. I think that's something that takes years uh, unless you're you're a real natural as opposed to thermaling. And you point this out pretty well in your book. You can learn that pretty pretty quickly, um, a, a lot of the b more basic aspects of it. But I think gliding is one of these really, you know, like somebody like Kriegel, that's going to be pretty hard for him to just teach. This is something that takes a lot yes. of hours and it's a lot of feel. We're, we're not trial, natural eagles. Trial and error. Exactly. Try and error on lines over terrain, like that every day is different, as I explained in the more weather 
uh, the more Meteo based part of the book where every day is different, you know, and uh, lines that you might take on one day over the terrain won't work on another day, mm. depending on uh, depending on the, the stability of the air mass. Mm. Um, but this, man, you can talk about this for hours and hours and of hours. Of course. But I, like... I, th I think back to that holding the nose open, you know, Russ Ogden gave a really great talk here after the, after the PwC a few years back in Sun Valley that, you know, he just flat out said, if you're having frontals, if you're having collapses, you're on a too hot of a wing. You know, and you, you mentioned yeah. that in the book, you know, if you're, you know, if, if you're not holding your glider open all the time, then you're not ready for the next step up. Oh, you sure. Know? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It, it, it's an attitude that was banded about in the like in the early 2000s that it's normal to have collapses. And a very well-known pilot uh, said that collapses are like losing the rear end, like skidding the rear end on your motorbike. Um, it's just uh, one of those things. But I think that if you keep skidding the rear end of your motorbike, anybody who rides motorbikes a lot, eventually you're going to come off. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I think that holding the nose open is quite an important skill. Mm. Uh, obviously, we've got enough passive safety in reserve that if you lose the nose, it's not the end of the world. But uh, if you're repeatedly losing the nose, then you're definitely you're either going out in conditions that are way too hot for you, the glider is way too hot for you, or you're in the wrong place, i.e. Uh, you're, you're flying near very strong inverted air um, or you're flying in the lead. Yeah. And I think that w once, you know, if you go from a C to a D or a comp wing, then that, then that no longer holds. Then, you know, the, 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 there isn't the passive safety there if you're taking frontals, you know, and, and Russ was really clear about that. He's like, listen, if you, if you have a frontal on a, on a, on a hot ship, it's too late. You know, that's, you've sure. already blown it <laughs> and it doesn't have the, doesn't have the safety, the passive safety there anymore uh -huh. to get it back. Getting it back then is a little bit of a matter of luck and act and reacting really fast, you know, cause it, you can't just put your hands up on a two liner. That doesn't work. No, 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 no. Right. Uh, yeah. a, a lot of the, a, a lot of the skill in the old days was putting the things back together. Mm. Um, but I think the skill these days is not letting them go in the first place. Bingo. Yeah, bingo. Perfect. Um, let's move on to the, the golden rule and the three common mistakes of thermaling. This is another concept that, uh, I, you know, I had never heard the term carving. I, I'd never heard the term the golden rule. Uh, get into that a little bit. Brilliant. Loved it. Well, the golden rule, I mean, anybody who, who uh, thermals well, like I say in the book, all good pilots in the world who can thermal well uh, are bound by a bunch of concepts and one of those concepts is the golden rule of constant cadence or smoothness and it doesn't just apply to thermaling it applies to gliding as well uh, next time you're out Gavin uh, have a feel of how smooth you are when you're gliding laterally um, and also with your pitch control and especially when you're entering thermals how you're trying to uh, maintain the golden rule I haven't actually said what it is yet have I the golden rule <laughs> states the golden rule states that no matter how the glider is moving above a pilot's head, the pilot beneath shall be um, shall have no sharp increases or decreases in speed. Mm. So what that effectively means is that the pilot is acting as suspension to take out all the bump swings and surges that would convert height to speed. Because whenever a pilot swings underneath and converts, um, and you feel that 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 um, what do you call it, that increase of speed as the pilot goes through the air, 
that has to come from somewhere and that's come from via gravity the pilot turning height to speed mm. which is really ineffective uh inefficient if you are especially trying to climb and if you're trying to glide and you're allowing the glider to pitch forward you swing underneath it increase your speed decrease your speed that's all little swing throughs and those little swing throughs end up costing you height mm. well that's the golden rule every every single every single pilot who can thermal well sticks to the golden rule whether they know it or not and anybody who doesn't will suffer Look at acro pilots. Acro pilots break the golden rule all the time. That's why their runs are super short. Right, right. That's a real basic way to look at that, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> they're destroying the, the golden rule from top to bottom, and that's why they're top right. to bottom so fast. <laughs> that's so fun. Right. I, I really like that. Um, the mapping. It's just a concept, it's just yeah. a concept to help people um, to try and be smooth. Yeah. Just to try and consciously be smooth. If you, even if you just understand that you need to be smooth, you'll automatically uh, climb a little bit better because your vario possibly will be a little bit more accurate because you're not swinging and swinging and I, surging and moving. I, I think for people that do things that uh, that the pendulum is the other way, you know, our arc is so much different than most sports that we participate in, riding a bike skiing skateboarding that arc is always below us i, I loved uh, nate nate scales first gave me this concept you know whereas our arc is above us but i think people that spend any time uh where the pendulum is below you this concept of carving really makes sense i, I like how you bring that up that you're not just using some brake and some leaning and you know and some stomach muscles you're carving a turn and because of this large pendulum instability is that we have to buy acting as a, uh, a suspension to keep it as smooth as possible, to keep it that we are in a constant motion underneath the glider as we can. No matter what the glider is doing, you know, the glider can be moving backwards, forwards. We just need to take out the bumps that we are moving through the air as smooth as possible. And you'll notice that, that, you'll notice that even subconsciously when good pilots are flying, uh, Gavin, next time you're out, just see that your forward speed through the air is as smooth as possible. And you'll notice that when you make a mis when you make mistakes, I make mistakes all the time, you know. But we just don't make as many mistakes as the less experienced pilots. And what you'll notice is that you'll know when you've made a mistake. You'll swing and you go, ah, oh, that's the swing through. Oh, that was the break in the golden rule. Something I see low hours pilots really struggle with is getting bumped out of a climb you know we can see it from the ground and when you're when you're, you're on the radio talking to you you'd see okay wait, wait the thermals to your left and they go how did you know it was to your left well you just we, we saw you get bumped out of it um what's your answer to them is that just experience yeah i mean you can when you look at gliders you can see the way that they move and you know i think people as well they put too much emphasis on turning the right way every time because with the mapping if you've understood what I wrote in the book about the mapping, even if you if you feel that the, t the turn is on the right, the climb is on the right, and you turn to the right, but you actually turn out of it, because sometimes you'll get pulled in and sometimes you get pushed out, and that just comes with experience. But um, you can always just go around 270 degrees and open up towards where it was. It starts getting crucial if you're low. Mm. Obviously, it's better to always turn into the climb, but it's not the end of the world. Because that's one of the questions that people always ask me. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? It's not that important. You mm. can turn left or right, okay? 
Hopefully you'll feel that the glider gets picked up. Maybe you moves you away from it. You can roll in. It feels a little bit different to being drawn in. And that is so, that is so, uh, what's the word? That is so black art. It's really, really difficult to explain the difference between being pulled and being pushed when you're sitting underneath a, a plastic bag. It's very, very difficult. And that just comes with trial and error. But try to explain to people that it's not the end of the world if you turn to the right and it's on your left. Because just keep it going around 270 degrees and open up where it was. Mm, it's not the perfect. end of the world. Unless you're super low. Unless you're super low where every meter counts. Sure. Sure. And that's, and that, that's, that, that's ours. I mean, that, that's, that's not something we can teach. That's just ours. You know, good, like you said, you know, good pilots seem to get lucky all the time, don't they? And, and it's, it's not luck. It's, it's, it's ours. If they're asking that question, then they just need more experience. Sure. Sure. Um, two concepts I'm going to take you up on a little bit here, because it, not that I don't disagree. It's just something that <laughs> I do. So I want to, I want to hear that I'm wrong. Um, you say there's two definite don'ts in thermaling. One is don't change direction. And the other is don't bury the brake. Now, the reason I'm going to take you up on that is that, you know, I think that, uh, cross country did a great article about, you know, when you're flying in the Northern hemisphere, uh, thermals tend to turn one direction versus if you're flying in the Southern hemisphere and we climb better if we're turning against the climb. So defend both of these concepts. The other one that don't bury the brake. Um, and this is maybe because I fly mostly two liners and I tend to, I fly a place that has really, really strong thermals. We're often in 10, 12s and more, um, where they can be, especially on high pressure days, they can be extremely ratty with extremely sharp edges. Um, you know, this is one out of 50, but there are times where I'll literally, uh, stall the inside of my glider on purpose to help me hook it. Um, and so you're, you know, you're saying these are just definite don'ts. Are there exceptions? Or are these always there are exceptions? These okay. are like they're, they're not, they're not hard. Nothing in the book is a hard and fast rule. They're like rule of thumbs for pilots who are, you know, say say you've got fifty to hundred hours and you're in the hill, and it's a windy day, and there's stories of bravery going on uh, around you, for want of a better expression, and. Some guy who, who, some other pilot, he maybe says, oh, I hit the core and I buried the brake. Now, I have a funny feeling because I've, I've noticed myself, I've been on autopilot when I've hit the core and I've buried the brake in inverted commas. And basically all I've done is just pulled the inside brake down just a touch more, maybe five centimeters. And that's wound me in enough to stay in the core that little bit better. Mm. Now, I'm sure that if I just jammed on the inside, I would swing out, my nose would swing forward, I would swing through and my vario could go silent because I've just converted loads of height to speed. I've basically broken the golden rule. Mm. Okay, um, That's one reason uh, not to bury the brake. Now, you see, lower airtime pilots, they might not understand the subtle concept of winding the energy in and bleeding the energy out. Okay. Mm. Um, which has a lot to do with the golden rule. It actually all comes down to the golden rule. So if you wind in that much energy by burying the brake and you don't know how to bleed that energy out, which I'm sure you do, uh, you understand what I mean by that, right? Sure, uh, as, you, as, you, as, you, as you flick out and you're now, your body is, you've sent your body quite far out uh, from where it was because you've hit loads of inside brake to get around that sharp turn. 
Now, if you don't use vast amounts of outside brake and release and roll uh, roll authority all at the right time, what you will end up doing is in, is um, uh, initiating a spiral dive. Okay, so what you what what so what burying the brake or saying try not to bury the brake or don't bury the brake is to try and stop pilots from hitting the core and jamming on the inside. Now, almost like a panic reaction. Like a panic reaction, but also thinking that it's an efficient thing to do. I, 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 yeah. I, there are there's horses for courses, you know. When it's like super narrow, I find that I am, um, I'm using quite a lot of inside, but I'm also bleeding the energy out straight away because otherwise I'm just in a spiral dive. Mm. Mm. I don't need to be that tight. I don't need my nose to be pointing towards the ground, trying to get out in a in a, a strong climb. Yeah, obey the golden, uh, golden rule. Obey the golden rule. Great. Uh, if that means that you can squeeze on a little bit more inside brake and manage to bleed the energy out, then that's a good, solid system. But if you're just hitting the core, burying the brake, swinging out, swinging through, dropping the nose and initiating a spiral dive, then that's not the way to do it. Sure. Um, going to jump here a little bit. That's, that's perfect. Thank you. I'm going to jump here a little bit to something that non-Alps pilots are probably a little bit less familiar with, but in the Alps, this is just one of the absolutely required, you, you have to know how to do this, is fly in the lee, or otherwise you're not getting anywhere. Um, your your lee side rule, I thought was really simple and and uh, and, and really powerful. Uh, tell me about your 15 kilometer rule and, and how you came up with that. Okay, well, I lived in the Zilla Valley for nearly 20 years, and um, on our house mountain, uh, the Penken, when winds started getting to about 15 kilometers an hour, then you notice. So, so we, so, as the valley wind, so what we're doing, we're flying in the lead of valley wind. So you can start at 11 o'clock on a summer's day and you can wind up on top land. And what you'll notice is that throughout the day, the wind will increase, not just in speed, but in height. And um, on launch, you'll feel pretty much how much the wind is blowing over the coal. And you also see it with your GPS when you're going downwind into the lee that we used to uh, spin up in. And the thermal would be moved further and further and further downwind until eventually, if it was like blowing 15 to 20, then it would be extremely sporty indeed. And I've seen people go in there at 25 and nearly fall into their wings. Now, what that also taught me is that because of the Zilla, you've, you've flown in Zilla Valley, right? Yeah. It's obviously the north-south running valley. Mm -hmm. And um, being on the north side of the Alps, the wind will come from the north, uh, which means that every sunny face in the valley is a potential lee side. And what I noticed at Flying XC was that if the wind was over 15 kilometers an hour, I, it, it started to get a little bit uncomfortable. And uh, or, oh, that was starting to be the limit of, of me having fun. I mean, I could do 20, but if I was doing 20, then I would have to look for somewhere that was a little bit different, like I say in the book, uh, looking for a bridge. So what I started to notice is that through trial and error, really, because when I moved to the Zilla Valley, I was on my own. Uh, I was the only English guy there who was flying paragliders. I had uh, a few local friends, but my German wasn't very good, and I was flying by myself all the time. So uh, what I ended up doing was, by trial and error, uh, trying to get past mountains in, in, in silly valley winds. And then I'd come back and I asked my mate, I said, oh, whenever I get to this particular mountain, you know, I'm, I'm having problems. And he said, oh, yeah, that's the Hamburg. And it turns out that even to this day, it's like one of the most 
feared and respected mountains in the Northern Alps mm. because of its aspect to the sun and because of the way the valley wind is squeezed over the top of it. So this was like, this, this mountain was actually, um, when I would do my, I used to call it wind beat sun, now I call it bridge principle. Um, but it's the same thing, the wind, wind beats sun. So you don't go to a sunny side, you go to a windy side if the wind is over 15, 20 kilometers an hour. Um, and the, the Hamburg, this particular mountain, used to be the mountain that I used to uh, choose an, as a, an example. Um, and if we did cross-country flights around the valley, and it involved uh, getting around the Hamburg, then I would do it pretty much coming from the north side, soar up in the wind, and then go into the protected area around the back, and uh, do it exactly, textbook, exactly as I explained in the book. Mm. And I, I would really encourage our, our listeners to make sure when you, when you get the book, which obviously by this point, I hope you're all running out to get it because there's all these concepts and way more. But, um, you know, you explain this really well in the book. And I think that, you know, when, you're, when you've gotten to that point where, okay, you've got some thermaling down and you've got some gliding skills down and you're, you're moving on, you're, you're moving up the pyramid where you're starting to be able to map your day out and go with the flow. You talk about that quite a bit as well. The understanding mm -hmm. how to move around. Around. And I think I think that's what what's very unique, at least for me, with the Alps, is that they're incredibly complicated. You know, we always talk about over here in the Rockies that it's just much gnarlier flying here because you know the thermals are stronger. There's more wind. The, the mountains are big. Uh, you know, you got desert right there, so just things things can really change really fast. And it's I guess burlier, but you know, the, the Alps are a place you have to have a lot of respect for because they're so complicated. There's just so many valleys. There's so many coals. There's so many valley systems. And you talk about, uh, you know, valley winds. We don't deal a lot with that here. We, our valley winds come from the same place. They're never going to change. They're never going to do like what they do at the Grimsel and the Furka and, and just go start going backwards all of a sudden. You don't understand what's going on. So I think okay. your your concept of, you know, you build it out really well there in the Zillertal in, t in terms of, all these concepts, you know, when it's over 15, you got to use the windward side first and, and, yep. uh, and, and use these bridges. Great concept of, of the bridge. And I really like that. So yeah, I would encourage our listeners to spend some time on those pages and really understand it. These are not the flick through pages. These are the pages. Are no, no, these are, the, these are the, the, the foundations of building strong routes. This is what I, I learned from flying with the local pilots over the years, it was actually interesting when I um, went to interview uh, Thomas Valda after he did his 325-kilometer route uh, when I interviewed him for XEMAG. And uh, after the interview, I kind of asked him, I said, oh, uh, Tom, I'm, I'm writing a, a, a book at the moment, and uh, I'd like you to comment, if you would be so kind, on, um, on the route planning stuff, because obviously you're the the man to ask, right. you know, after just breaking the world record. And he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So what, what, what's, what are you writing about? So then I realized that over the years, we had never, ever spoke about this stuff. This was just stuff that we did. We just went out there and then we did. And because Tom has never taught anybody, we've never spoke about it. And because I teach people, it's my job. So I've had to break it down into what we're doing on a route plan. And I was just thinking, oh, hang on, this is the first time I'm going to, tell one of the world's best pilots my mate what i think that he's doing <laughs> and i was like a bit shy about it and i said right okay well tom i believe that first of all you know we are uh, following the flow of the day so i broke that down i said well we're gonna follow uh, follow the sun obviously and he was looking at me a bit strange 
And then I said, and then, um, so we go against the valley winds in the morning when there are no valley winds, and then we use the valley winds to come home at the end of the day. And he kind of looked at me even more strange, and he said, well, of course. And right. I was like, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is, yeah, because we never spoke about it, you know. Mm. We, uh, but this is all the stuff that I learned in Zilla Valley uh, over the many years. Sure, and on a smaller scale, North and then route. he brought it to the big scale, yeah. The, the strange thing is about, or, 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 or the more serious thing about the north side of the Alps is that you can't get it wrong. Mm. You know, when you go on a long glide and you end up in the lee side of a 25-kilometer-hour compression, uh, it's not funny anymore. Mm. You know, then you really start to find out how the passive safety of your machine possibly works. And I'll be lying if I told you that that had never happened to me over my many, many years of trial and error. But I was very lucky I always flew gliders that I could handle and um, notched it up to experience in the early years, you know. As I said, because I was the only English guy there and I was just basically just flying around. And then I soon realized that, okay, there are some places here that you don't want to fly. And I realized pretty soon after that that they all had something in common, that they're all southwest faces and they're all in the shadow of the valley wind. But if you went further in, then they were safer. Sure. And again, this is something that we never spoke about uh, amongst the local pilots that, um, I don't know, and I'm, and I'm sure they still don't talk about this stuff, maybe because they just do it instinctively, uh, or I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but because I had to explain it to people why you don't go there, um, it was, all, basically what I say on my course is that all the stuff I'm telling you is because I've learned it the hard way. Sure, yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I, and I think the reality is, is, if you're not willing to take those risks, then, you know, maybe XC paraglides, because we're all going to get into those situations at some point, are you, they're not totally, you know, you're, you can't always that's avoid them. And, and then that's, that's coming back to your concept of be on the right wing, have the right toolbox. And to go in with your hands up, to go up with your, to go over your hands in front of your face, not going into a lee side, taking photos of your hands off your brake, sucking on your, uh, on your drink straw. Yeah. Don't be an you know, idiot. Knowing when it could be, knowing when it could be a bit edgy. Yeah, exactly. And to cut your losses, you know, go, I'll have a look, and if I don't like it, I'm out of there. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's 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 jump again here to a concept that I think a lot of pilots really struggle with. Um, and, and you mentioned it earlier, but but speed to fly. I'm just going to give it a quote right out of your book. Uh, your rule of thumb is to accelerate the wing to get to my ground speed as close as I can to the trim speed of the wing. Um, this, that's about probably the simplest way I've ever heard of speed to fly. And I just wanted that you expand because we can talk about McCready. We could talk about if it's windy, press full bar. If it's, if you're going downwind, you know, maybe even be a little bit heavy in the, I mean, I've heard this a million different ways and, uh, you know, but you're, you, you break, I, I think that's a very simple way to do it. You know, your rule of thumb is to keep your wing at trim speed. No, a, no, the trim speed of your wing. Uh, but B, if you can, yeah, I, I like that. Um, can, can we get into that a little bit? Yeah, well, it is. It's as simple as I just explained it. I mean, I noticed that over the years, um, you know, I've tried to look at the glide calculator and stuff like that, but I noticed that, you know, oh, I've got like 4K on the nose. I just give enough that my glide angle, it depends on how much of a hurry you're in as well. You know, this is just, this is just for best glide. Mm. And I, to be honest with you, Gavin, I don't know how, uh, what would you call it, scientific this is. It just kind of works for me. 
mm. uh, whether I'm going crosswind, sidewind, obviously not downwind. Yep. Um, I'm not really a downwind dasher where I live, so we do a, like, a little bit of flying around the flatlands of Bassano and in the Alps. Um, so we're not really doing like big flights with uh, 25, 30k winds down, the, down, down um, in our backs. I'm not sure how it would work then, because obviously you can't go trim speed. If you've got 30k, if you're doing like 60k over the ground, you've got to slow down so much that you are going at trim speed. It only really works if it's on the nose or crosswind. Sure. Okay, otherwise, um, and, I, and again, I don't know how scientific it is. Uh, Russell Ogden said to me that if um, you give as much gas as you can hold the nose open, you know, that's uh, another another thing Russell mm. Russell said many, many years ago. Give as much, if, if the climb is strong in front of you, uh, give as much gas that you can hold the nose open. Gotcha. Uh, but really, if I'm just cruising around and I'm not in a major hurry, then uh, I just accelerate the glider until I see 36, 37. I normally fly low, low intermediate gliders. Uh, whether they're performance bees or whether they are, um, I don't know, maybe out of school wings, like the the, the, the very modest 5.2 aspect ratio wings that are out there. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, you you go into, we're, we're getting towards the kind of the end of the book now, you, you go into some really terrific concepts in, in a very good kind of baseline about Medio that's beyond the, the scope of this conversation. But one thing I do that I had never heard of, uh, yet again, this is great, um, the air mass spectrum uh, from volatile to stubborn, volatile, flexible, cooperative, lazy, stubborn, um, or no, sorry, volatile, excitable, cooperative, lazy, stubborn. Um, yep. Give me a little bit on that. This is a, this is another a really cool concept that takes us from fizzy to sticky, which is another one exactly. that I've never so, heard of. I love it. So I try and explain, I try to explain to people because a day, a day, no two days are the same. They're not carbon copies of each other. The every day is made up of a combination of uh, wind, air pressure, humidity, um, uh, lapse rate, and obviously the sun is the last one. Mm -hmm. So every single day is different. And if you understand that a day that has a slightly more unstable feel will react very differently, the way that the air mass will interact with the terrain, the aerology, will be different on an unstable day. So the kind of uh, things you can plan, because maybe the day is short, uh, thermals will not go very high, so don't expect any kind of really long glides. Um, they'll be very often the thermals, and maybe not, maybe strong, maybe not, depending on, on the lapse rate. But um, we'll behave very differently to like high pressure, um, more stable days. So that's the very binary way of looking at it. Okay, so fizzy is really unstable and sticky is really stable. So I wasn't really happy with just saying, like, where is the day on the fizzy and sticky stable, uh, fizzy and sticky uh, spectrum when we're on launch, because that will tell us even when, when to launch. Um, so I wanted to make it that it was a little bit more, a little bit less binary and a little bit more analog so then people could start to understand the, the the character of the air mass and each one of these characters has a slightly different feel so volatile obviously is uh, quite stormy um, probably a very short day excitable it's probably quite fun to fly but quite still quite a short day 
um, thermals aren't going very high because of the pressure, humidity, and lapse rate and the amount of sun that's available. And then we've got the cooperative days, which are perfect in both the Alps and the, and the um, flatlands. And then we've got the, uh, the lazy days that require a little bit more prodding, a little bit more encouragement, i.e. via the sun. And then we've got the stubborn days that just whatever you do to them just won't work. So it's still the fizzy and sticky spectrum, but it's just coloured in a little bit more. Mm. Just to make people understand that it's not just left or right, one or two, black or white. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, great. Fantastic. Um, I've got a whole bunch of notes here on atmosphere and, and uh, you know, meteo and valley winds, which I just think are again are a little bit beyond the scope of this conversation i just invite people to go into that in the book because you you get into it really well um two two last things i wanted to talk about um you talk about the natural uh and and it, what immediately came to mind to me was the was the baseball uh film you know with with robert redford um the the natural expand on that a little bit about you know because i i think that you know when we first paraglide we often don't have instruments you know we're just hucking off the hill and i i, I really like this because i think it's something i've actually incorporated this into my, my own flying a couple of years ago that i purposefully fly without instruments quite often because i think it does uh help us to become more kriegel exactly <laughs> exactly um well it's what most pilots should uh strive for you know, uh, in the beginning, as you said, we when we first start soaring on small hills, uh, we are yeah, just flying by feeling. And then we end up getting these more and more and more high-tech stuff, and then we end up relying on this stuff. And I'm ashamed to say that I'm quite reliant on the clumsy Vario. Mm. Uh, I've tried, again, as you, as, as, you, as you say, I try and turn it off, and... It's, I feel lost without it, but I'm persevering. I am trying to become more natural. I'm trying to become, um, obviously there's some things that you need our tech, that we need our technology for, for glide calculating and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, but one thing that I don't like about the way that modern instruments is going, and I, uh, maybe this is not a very, uh, popular thing to say, but I hate these thermal mappers. Mm. Uh, I think that they take away this from the soul of the sport. They definitely detract from the soul of the sport um, because I find that people are staring too much at their screens. It's like they're playing virtual paragliding instead of actually um, using a mapping strategy. And ironically, these, these thermal mappers, they work when the climb is strong, when you don't need a thermal uh, mapping skill. And they, when the thermal goes light, they don't work as well and then the person is lost because they rely so much on this um, this technology to get them through. They mm. struggle. Mm. I think they can be. I think they can be two things. On on the on the positive side, they can encourage you to uh, seek more instead of just turning and turning and turning. They can encourage you to bend bend it out a little more into an area that you maybe didn't. You know, I I think Nick Grease had a, has always been. He's always he's such a good climber. I'm always looking at the bottom side of his wing, and you know his 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 kind of concept is to explore to find the core. So I think they can yeah. be good at that, but they can be, you know again it's one of these things that when you rely on something you have radically reduced your observation skills. You know when you're yep. when you're look when you're just staring at that thing, 
you've lost your observation, which is how can you climb? Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's 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 it seems to be that uh, you know you get kicked out of school. The first thing they sell you is a GoPro, which is uh, <laughs> just makes me cringe. Uh, and then an instrument with a thermal mapper. Okay, I understand that in the beginning, you know, it's a very frustrating sport. Um, but a, a dot on the center of the screen or bubbles or whatever it does, these weird and wonderful machines, um, are no uh, substitute for a strong mapping strategy. Yeah, perfect. Great. That's the bottom line. That's the, uh, the, for me, that is the bottom line. It's a, I mean, I don't mind if people, I don't care what people use. You know, it's, it's, it's your game. It's not mine. But I think that, uh, you know, uh, if you really want to experience the soul of the sport, then that's why I say about being natural. Mm. But what, what I found, what I found is uh, this is almost going back on what I've just said. Uh, I've just got a very, very, very sensitive area which relies on a accelerometer. I think it is is mm-hmm. that what they're called? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, now, what I've noticed is what that's doing when I'm mapping. It's made my mapping. About 22 degrees, so I worked it out because it's about it, it, there's, the second lag is gone. I don't know if this is relevant, but uh, this the second lag is gone uh, from when I hit the core when I'm carving. So my so I can trust my instrument more. So therefore, because I'm carving at 16 seconds, every second is 22 and a half degrees. It's made my mapping potentially 22 and a half degrees more accurate. However, that gets away from natural flying again. Do you understand what I mean? So it's a bit of a, uh, a conundrum there. there. Yeah, you know yeah. that that's interesting that you bring that up. And and uh, when when I was in Alaska, uh, just because of weight, uh, I used the XC Tracer, which is that's exactly the one that yeah. I'm talking about. I didn't brilliant. really want to mention any names, but um, no, it's a, it's a brilliant little device, and I and I, I really like this concept of of no delay. But as of yet, I don't fly as well with it. Uh, and I, no. I'm, I'm really trying, well, I think the averager uh, on a, you know, a, a Flymaster or a Flytech uh, is for some reason, maybe that's just how I've learned. I've just flown with them. Exactly. You get, I, I, it's too immediate. Sort of... It's too immediate for me. I, I, I can't, I can't figure out nearly as fast where the core is. So I've actually gone back. Again. To it, huh? What's that? You've got to adapt to it. Yeah, exactly. Done X amount of hours on a, on something that you know inside out. It took me a it took me a few weeks to adapt to it, and I also had to customize it because I found that it was um, not beeping hard enough in the lower end of the range, so it wasn't encouraging you in the light stuff because everyone comes up in the strong stuff, Gavin. Huh? Yeah. Everybody, sure. But uh, I prefer the really light stuff, like under half a meter, thirty centimeters a second when the climb is tight. Um, you know the real technical stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. And, um, yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. You know, I wrote this the, the chapter on natural. It would be nice if I was at that level. But um, that's that's why, as far as I can see, that's the next, that is the end because I can't see further than that. Right. Um, because I haven't attained it yet. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, that's the beautiful thing about this sport. I don't think we ever really do, you know. <laughs> there's, there's always more to learn. Okay, the last thing I, w- I want to end on, uh, not that this is necessarily a – well, we can we can turn this into a positive for sure, but something that I think pilots uh, that don't fly in the Alps much are not the, – the, a concept that they don't 
naturally understand is, is phone. Um, and, and you, you give a really good discussion on this. When I first went to the Alps, that was, I, I'd never heard of that. I didn't know, even know what it was. And, you know, again and again, uh, Bruce Marks, who's, I know had been one of your, one of your students, he's one of my supporters in the X Alps, very good friend of mm-hmm. mine. You know, this is when we were back in the days where we were chasing it really hard. And, you know, we'd, we'd ruck up to a place like Fish on a Tuesday and we'd be the only two pilots there. And, you know, and of course we were, we were smart enough to know like, hmm, What's wrong? <laughs> but you know, it was you know, it was a day that was you know, uh, the 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 phone was five or yeah. six or something, and and like you point out really well in your book, um, you know, you can get away with it until it dumps, and then it is just yeah, terrifying. Your quote: um, "You can be the best captain in the world, but boats don't float on phone uh, on on foam." Exactly. Um, that is so terrific. But I I guess I just. I, this can't be a full discussion about phone because it's just it's a concept we could talk about for hours. Um, but I just want to sure. put out that that warning. What what do people need to be aware of when they come to the Alps for the first time? What's what's a go day versus a not a go day, and why? Well, a lot of it depends on where you're flying. Uh, you need to know if where you're flying is phone sensitive. Uh, the closer you get to the main ridge of the Alps, the more sensitive it is. North-south running valleys are often more sensitive as well. Uh, And then the overall metro situation. So uh, a good um, firm forecast of four hectopascals between north and south side of the Alps is enough to trigger it in sensitive areas. Um, There are some areas that you can fly, even though it's up to eight, but they are normally a long, long way away from the main ridge of the Alps and uh, have a lot of mountains in between them uh, that have east-west running valleys that break up this falling flow. Um, But saying that, if the firm breaks through, then um, all bets are off. Mm. So Mm. basically don't take, uh, in in my opinion, if you don't really understand the firm and uh, you see four hectopascals and no locals are flying, a four hectopascal difference between, say, Innsbruck and Bolzano, if you're on the eastern side of the Alps, then that is definitely not a good sign, mm. north or south. But obviously, if you're on the south side of the Alps and it's south firm, then it's not firm. It would only be firm on the north side of the Alps if it's south firm. Sure. And if yeah. it's north firm, then it's firm on the, north, on the south side and probably just raining on the, on the windward side. And I think it's important to remember in, in paragliding, we are one flight away from, uh, you know, either an injury or a, a flight that is so scary, you won't return to the sport and phone yeah, churn sure. is the kind of stuff that will make that happen. I, I speak that yeah. from experience. So sometimes in the, in the X Alps, you, you're, you're almost forced into these situations and, and it is always ugly. In the book, I give my fern, my fern story because I always thought that the fern was just a, uh, a strongish wind that might be a bit turbulent, people told me. This is like going back in the, early, uh, in the uh, late 90s. Mm. And I thought, well, if the wind is 30, 30 kilometers an hour, uh, or 35 kilometers an hour, you know, I've, uh, I'm, I'm not in the lee. I'm far enough away from anything. Surely I can just give some gas and push forward. Wrong. No. How wrong was I? Oh, wow. it, that is not what Fern is. <laughs> it is. It's like it's like flying. It's like flying in a in a in a class five river. It, it's yeah. just it's awful. Rotor, rotor within rotor within rotor. 
with more rotor involved. So I call it fractal rotor. Yeah, yeah that's a great way to put it. it it's flying. Yeah, it's it's flying in a class five river. It's just you cannot see the air. Nothing makes sense. It's SIV all the way to the ground, and that's if you're lucky. It's just terrifying. It's uh, that's not. I was lucky that, that 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 story that I tell in the beginning of the chapter about the fern, mm. when uh, 25 of us local pilots, you know, you'd think that if you go with uh, the club, the local club, when you're a, a low airtime pilot, that if you think that if you go up the mountain with 25 of them, some of the world's best pilots in there, that um, that you'd be safe. But uh, no, it could have been a very black day for the club when the fern broke through. And uh, I was only saved that there was about 150 meters of lamin and north wind blowing on the valley floor. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you now. And I think what's really important about fern is, is that what, what, exactly what you just said, when it breaks, we have no idea. It just builds and builds and builds and dumps and then builds and builds and builds and dumps. And if you're in that dump, it man. Yeah, you can't see the inversions. You can't see when they break and you have no idea. I mean, we used to go fern soaring a lot in, in uh, Meyerhofen when it was just south wind and as the fern was on the on the way up and you could see because there's a lake at the bottom of the valley at the uh, oh, it's hard to explain but there's uh, opposite where we're going soaring at the bottom where the fern would come through there's a lake and then you would start to see that on the far end of the lake it would be mirror on the far end you start seeing some little uh telltales that the wind was coming and then you'd go down but the visitors would see you flying and they would go, oh, it's still flyable. We'll go up. And then the next wave would go up. And the next wave would go up. And the last wave, they would get hammered by the fern. Mm. So I decided that it was irresponsible to go up and uh, go fern soaring, really, because that led people to believe that maybe it was safer than it was. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to go up in this. There are good days to go mountain biking. You know, they live to fly another day, I think, is the, is the point we're getting to here. Yeah. Um, okay. It's just that, you know, in the early days, uh, it's easy to become obsessed with the sport and you say, right, I'm going to fly, I can, I can fly in this, I can fly in this. Like those days for me are well and truly gone. I, now I go and do something else. Well, I think I think hunger is a terrific thing. And, you know, and, and it, but it just has to be balanced because it's just, you know, it, it's a really fine line, isn't it? Between, you know, your experience where you had that 150 meters and your whole club landed safely to a really black day, you know, and that's, exactly. that's exactly what it is. There's just, there's not that many of those black days you're going to get through. Hopefully, you know, we paraglide, we're going to have them, but, you know, you, you want to limit them as, as much as you can. Um, okay, Sleep. last. is that, uh, yeah, you don't mess around with a ferner. Yeah, exactly. If you don't know what it is, don't mess around with it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the point here. Um, okay, I want to be I want to be conscious of your time. I know you you're you're in Asia, and you, it sounds like you had some bad food last night. So, uh, it, it we're about hour. This is just terrific. But one one question I I was asking uh, again and again, and I and I've just I've been remiss in the last few interviews, and I've been it's been requested to ask it again. Um, it advice for a 50-hour pilot and even specifically to you if you could rewind the clock back to 96 uh when you were first getting into it um what would you what would you have liked to have been told that maybe you weren't or maybe you were oh what would i have liked to have been told just take your time Mm. take your time it will all come you know like the, the life is long enough and you can't do it all in in the first years, you know, I almost envy, uh, sometimes envy the lower experienced pilots because they've got it all to come. 
Mm. If that sounds without sounding a bit, a bit strange, it's like they've got it all to come, and um, you know the first fifty k, the first, uh, the first, always the new experiences. Mm. You know, just always constant new experiences. As when you when you've been flying for twenty odd years, then the new experiences are fewer and further between. You know, right? It's harder to, harder to have that. Oh my God! I just left the ground feeling, but but we never lose it, do we? No, it's but, always but, amazing. But, so not be in a hurry, you know. All 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 the good things will come. That's Great. all. That's all I can say on that. Really, Fantastic. all the good things will come. Great. Uh, the book is Mastering Paragliding. I would even go so far as to say a, a, a master's course in paragliding. I remember uh, Russ Ogden telling me about that at one point. Uh, the, the author and my guest is Kelly Farina. Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, it's just, it really is a terrific book. And I think, like you said, it's for, for all levels of pilots, but especially those that are just getting into the sport or maybe at those intermediate hours. There's just concept after concept that are that are really well broken down. Uh, congratulations. Congratulations to you for writing it. I know uh, from my own experience, writing a book is really challenging and hard. Uh, I bet. Thanks for the kind words and uh, thanks for having me, uh, Gavina. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, hopefully we'll get to meet in person someday. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, man. That'd be nice. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed that. Lots of fantastic concepts there. Uh, please go out and get Kelly's book. I've provided a link there on the website under that podcast. Many of you have asked uh, where you can donate to the podcast. As always, all we ask for is a buck a show. If you got something out of this one or one of the previous episodes uh, to help keep us going, just send us a buck. I really appreciate that. That link, that donate link is uh, very big and obvious underneath any of the paragliding or any of the podcast episodes. So just click on that. It'll take you through PayPal. Thank you very much. Uh, if you're just discovering the podcast, I highly recommend you go back and check out some of the some of the former shows. Um, I'm just I just reviewed it the other day. I kind of I think I frequently kind of fall back on some of my favorites, but they're all just terrific. Uh, the one with Will Gad, fantastic. The one with Tom Dorlado, an ex Alps pilot, good friend of mine, just terrific. Uh, as always, Jeff Shapiro's uh, his whole kind of viewpoint on risk and why we do what we do just terrific um so go back check those out and uh if you can recommend somebody you want to see on the show uh, just send me an email uh, if you could give us a rating on itunes or stitcher or google play whatever whatever method you get your podcasts on give us a rating i really appreciate that uh, especially if you can't give us a donation that really helps spread the word and that's what this is all about just getting out information so we can all be safer better pilots and fly far uh, be safe, have fun. See you on the next show. Cheers.